You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Welcome to the Women in Archaeology Podcast, Episode 12. Today's panel consists of Chelsea Slotten, Kirsten Lopez, and Emily Long. Today the panel is discussing the causes and the effects of the Dakota Access Pipeline. How did something like this come about, and how can we avoid it in the future? Let's join the conversation. Hi everybody, and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast. My name is Chelsea. Um, I'm one of the regular co-hosts, and I am joined tonight by Emily Long and Kirsten Lopez, also two of our regular co-hosts. It's great to have you guys on tonight. Hello! Hey! (laughs) Tonight we are going to be talking about the Dakota Access Pipeline. This is obviously a hot topic in the world right now, both in terms of archaeology as well as tribal rights and activism and energy rights and everything. So couple notes before we start. This is obviously an ongoing situation. We are pulling all of our information from publicly available sources. So it is very likely that additional things will come out in in the near future, the far future that will not be included here. Um, But doing what, what we can with what we have. So the CRM podcast also hosted on the Archaeology Podcast Network has recently done a really good overview of the the Dakota Access Pipeline from a CRM perspective. So if you are interested in a very legal looking at that, um, it's a good resource to, to go for. And Emily or Kirsten, do one of you want to do just like a brief summation of, of what's going on up there? Being that the pipeline crossed raw water, the Army Corps of Engineers requires permits. So they have company go through several groups or risks, as some might call it, uh, called an environmental uh, statement or an environmental assessment. In preparing this, they look at not just environmental things, but also cultural. So that's sort of the general theme, and those who are listening aren't very familiar with 106 process yet. So what you have is a fairly thick and semi-coherent number of laws that do work together, but they were not made at the same time. So they articulate kind of on the kind of where, you know, there's process and there is something that people uh, or archaeologists, specifically cultural resource management firms, will go through to assist these companies in compliance um, with these laws. So there's an entire industry that thrives on justice. So stepping into this, you had... Um, involved in that process to have consultation with trust. In this case, there's a, quite a number of tribes, I want to say five, along the entire length of the 1,137-mile pipeline. With that, there were consultations, but they weren't thorough, and the tribes, at least in particular, the Standing Rock Sioux, were not happy with the way those consultations were carried out. Now, unfortunately, the way the law is written, they don't have blanket for the pipeline. So, kind of where the problem starts. All of the consultations were done. There was, um, from what I understand, more of a town hall style consultation. I haven't seen a whole lot, and Emily's correct me on this, 
as to how much government-to-government relations were done. I know there were a number of letters, uh, some claims of some being unanswered uh, in both directions, and I think that may have some limitation on the propriety of conducting government-to-government relations in a particular situation. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but that, that's kind of my, what I'm picking up from what I pull out of the public information. And onward, they started earlier this year and uh, hit a particular portion of the pipeline, which is sort of that, that some might call the beginning, it's up at the uh, north end, so beginning of where the, the oil will flow down. Uh, but there's been a southern portion that, from my understanding, has been completed prior. I've heard a few different numbers. There was 47% of the pipeline that's been constructed so far. That's oh, what I, wow. that's the other number that I heard too. So it's kind of, it's been poking along. Uh, and so this is pretty far into process because construction generally doesn't start on a project for usually a number of years from the initial start of it and with the consultation. So, uh, from there, I guess the summary just kind of goes into what you see on the news. You have a lot of people that are very angry, uh, tribe who have in a very beautiful way been joined by 200, over 200 other tribes. Um, I think actually it's up to 300 now, uh, from around the country who have physically gone to support a standing rock as well as financial and other types of support in order to, um, stand with them and get their voices heard, which has not been in the history of things that's successful. But it's kind of neat as an archaeologist or as an anthropologist we see the people really kind of stand for themselves for the first time in a very long time. And it's considered the largest Native American gathering in recent history. Um, and then from there, I guess, Emily, you want to take some of the details down. Yes. Um, so with the environmental assessment, um, that was uh, completed uh, by the um, U.S. Army um, uh, uh, U.S. Corps of Engineers. Um, they had what was called a FONSI. It's a finding of no significant impact, um, meaning they, that nothing um, culturally or environmentally significant enough to stop an entire project um, was found. But I think that's really all that was said. Um, the Environmental assessment usually is typically vague um, when uh, given to the public, and that's to protect uh, potential endangered species areas, um, culturally sensitive areas, archaeological sites. And so it's a little bit tricky getting into those really particular details. Well, what was being found? What were the issues here um, that are now uh, coming to light if we have this document saying there isn't anything that's significant enough or significant at all? But now we have all these other things coming up. So, if anything, we're missing the details, which is a pretty significant problem. Yeah, at least with the EA. Uh, and then with other different um, issues coming to light, uh, we had the, um, I believe it's the, the, is it the current or the past typo that was, um, I think it's the past typo or just previous typo. Yeah, and I'm unclear as to whether it's as to now, but I don't know if it was current during the uh, original uh, consultations or not. I don't know. The um, problem for the conservation officer, it's similar. So every state has a SHPO, state um, historic preservation officer. And they, um, for a SHPO, statewide is trying to 
make sure that permits, um, in which areas are uh, going under development, so road construction, that kind of thing, go through compliance, um, so that a survey was done, um, an excavation uh, was conducted um, in the appropriate way, and that if there were any potential damage for cultural resources, that those um, potential that potential damage could be mitigated, that something be done. Now, TIPO, um, every Native American tribe has a TIPO, a Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, and their role is very similar in that there is work conducted on um, Native American lands or in an area, um, public land, so a forest service, park service, if there's uh, a cultural property um, that is significant to that particular tribe, um, or sacred, um, or an archaeological site that is an ancestral area, that they become involved to make sure that area is protected and that any potential damage is mitigated before that project actually occurs. Um, and so that is one of the issues that's coming up that it's about saying, or that the previous typo, that there were all of these archaeological sites, there were these um, cultural properties, and that there wasn't enough consultation, that mitigation did not occur. Yeah, I want to pop in on that too. There's a lot of things and a lot of things floating around in the, in the archaeological uh, circle that there weren't any artifacts found. It's not enough photos, enough why it's cleared and why it's done. Um, I think timing really bad in that they had a horrible decision to do that as soon as the court, uh, the injunction was filed by the tribe, of course, and they did those days before it went to trial, before the judgment. So that was really fast on their part. That was messy and ugly, and it did not uh, really portray any sort of trust or uh, good intention at all. That was a bad on their part. But secondly, just because there aren't artifacts doesn't mean it's not a sacred site. It doesn't mean, like you're saying, those traditional cultural properties, they may look like nothing to us and they will often not look at you know, points or anything of that sort or off those uh, properties because they're for a specific purpose that's not specifically not going to have wars, you're not going to have hunting necessarily occurring on those sites. And so this is where there's a big gap in uh, communication, and there's a big gap, really, uh, oh, what I'm looking for, um, adherence to the standing, huh? Yeah, lack of standing, and an adherence to the law in that traditional cultural properties aren't always assessed when they should be. It's not something that's always included with 106 and NEPA, which also applies to the um, National Environmental Policy Act. Um, that also includes cultural properties, uh, which does not necessarily mean that it's archaeological at all. Um, it could be sacred to modern people that covers that uh, or important. So the impacts for people are much broader uh, in all of the surrounding areas. So it would also cover the impact on the reservation. So it's not going to this reservation. Um, that does seem like it was included. And again, I don't know if it's there, but from what I can tell from what it is, um, it appears that it was very, um, and from what I hear, this is uncommon certain um, projects that surrounding tasks aren't always set. Sometimes it's only the footprint that the project feels that it's necessary to look at when it needs to be also the surrounding condition, for example, um, that can really be damaged uh, or damage the, the cultural property. I think especially too with the 
Christianity. Yes, it's also a cultural, considered like a, a sacred cultural waterway. And you look at the environmental impact, yes, maybe that one specific spot may not be impacted by um, creation of the pipeline underneath the river. However, water is further down the way. So you're exactly right. It's not the, um, uh, the whole um, area. It's just that one little area. And I think what was really well addressed on the CRM podcast episode was how the project as a whole, the, the, how the permit set up um, the pipeline project, which the areas which areas we surveyed, is very choppy. Yeah. Strange settings. So you're not looking at it as a full um, line. You're looking at these tiny little footprints. And so it's no wonder that it wasn't considered as a whole, that something was missing. And doesn't some of that have to do with the space that the pipeline is going to be constructed in, there are a lot of private lands that are going to be covered by the pipeline. So those little pieces of, of land that are federal land and are affected um, are under the jurisdiction of the, the Army Corps of Engineers. While they amount to um, a, a good bit of land, I don't have the exact number in, in front of me, None of them by themselves are particularly large. And the legislation between what happens on private land and what happens on public land is different. It is different in a lot of cases, but when you get to large projects, and this is my understanding and my experience from being a technician on a lot of these, you know, big brain people that I work with, is that you get a large project like that and you're going on top of really different types of land you have. Private land have, uh, like, individuals, you know, say, ranchers or farmers. You also have corporate lands, you have utility-owned, public utility and private utility lands. You have general, you know, things like uh, BLM or, say, um, Army Corps of Engineer land. But anything that becomes what's called an undertaking under 106, meaning that it, in this case, uh, that verbiage was triggered because permit was required from a federal agency. Even on private land, 106 still stands. You still have to pass that test. You can't skip it. It still has to go under the same process. So if you are, say, on your private ranch, connecting a waterway, you know, or pulling, I'm pulling a situation out of my gear right now, but say, <laughs> you have something where you're, uh, tapping into a natural gas line that runs into the neighboring property. Just random question. That would require a permit, right? Sure. So, because it has to do, well, I guess, unless it was, if only if it was the uh, public be owned. Anyway, scratch that example. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that you have a private owner. There are situations that you trigger for that private owner on his own land needs a federal permit. Um, Usually, you will have something like that that will be triggered. It may be a small project, but one of them still has to be on follow. And that's kind of confusing, too. Um, a lot of the available information that uh, we're given um, about, about this entire project, about the uh, situation, um, one of the articles I've read, and uh, we'll link up a bunch of the, the articles uh, on the Archaeology Podcast Network for this episode, um, one of them stated that the attorney for the pipeline stated that because the, um, the grading that occurred after even um, the uh, former TIFO said, oh, look, there are burial plants right here, that because that area, that um, all of that was on 
private land that was not subject to Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act. And then in the features that um, the gentleman identified, that it, it almost didn't matter. And they all it also went into how the pipeline would avoid all of that anyway, and that they would have um, gone around it. And therefore, anything that had been identified couldn't be historically historic and so forth. So there's there is massive miscommunication going on, and I think it, it gets incredibly confusing, even for those of us who are familiar with the laws. I yeah. find myself going back, scratching my head, going, wait, okay, so if it's on private land, is it voluntary? Can the private landowner say, nope, I do not want a survey conducted, or do they have to because it's a federal undertaking? Um, so are you more familiar with that, that as you were saying how it does still have to take place, but are, is there wiggle room within that where the landowner can say no? I'm looking for that right now. Um, there might be. I, I think it's less that um, it doesn't have to be looked at, but they can deny access to their land to do it. So then people um, can't get there to do that portion. And I'm, I'm going to double check on that. The other thing that would apply, though, that's all right well um we are actually right about at our 20 minute mark for our first break so why don't we go ahead and take a quick break here if you want to take a couple minutes and, and look for that information that would be great and we can talk about that when when we get back awesome Let's face it, the quality of archaeological field photography could really use some improvement. We aim to change this with the Codify Magic Photo Board. This lightweight but incredibly durable board is designed to help you take color-perfect photos of artifacts, features, and sites using almost any camera, even your smartphone. You need to see it to believe it. Engineered from exceptional quality, color-safe, high-pressure laminate, Codify Magic Photo Board is ready for tough field conditions. It's guaranteed to level up your photography. Start taking publication-worthy photos right in the field with the Codify Magic Photo Board. Available now for pre-order, visit codify.com slash APN. That's codifi.com forward slash APN today and get your promo code exclusively for listeners of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology Podcast. Today we've been talking about archaeological issues surrounding the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, before we went to break, we were talking about uh, some of the, the rules, Section 106 and, and NEPA, which are both very uh, long documents. But Emily, I believe you found a couple of things over break that you wanted to add to the conversation. Yes, thank you. Um, so just then a, a quick perusal of the law survey can take place. So it's like, again, it gets very muddled. I'm scratching my head. So it's the law. Yes. <laughs> right? Lots of, lots of law is muddled. <laughs> lots of jargon that even those of us who are mired in jargon every day just go, what? Well, to add to, you know, the confusion on how they ended up going ahead with bulldozer anyway, the fact that they did allow surveys and that they did do some discussion and that the TIPO did, or previous TIPO did have the opportunity to be very upfront and brought, you know, document discussion to uh, the agency and to the company being like, hey, this is something that's important, this needs to be taken care of, and they ended up more or less, from what I could gather, ignoring that. Um, and some of that, you know, currently it's 
the company's lawyer, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, did mention that, you know, because it's private land, it doesn't count, basically, uh, in a very crude paraphrase. Uh, but if they did allow and or even invite on the tribe to take a look, then it does count because you do have the records there, uh, in which case it should be considered. Now, as far as, you know, going on the land, do more work or not work, that's one thing, but can't, the landowner can't just do bulldoze everything on my land because I say, okay, once something's identified and considered significant, then it can't be. And then well, that's when burials. If yeah. a burial is found at any point, all work stops. So if there, um, and that's again a little more confusion, I think, with the news. I keep hearing burial cairns, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if that is a, a literal burial or um, uh, an, an ancestral type of uh, marker, you know? Sure. Um, and I think that gets a little bit muddled. But yeah, they, they would have to stop your 100% right. So one actually interesting thing that it was uh, in the, the Bismarck Tribune from September 25th, um, there's a there's a section that actually specifically addresses sacred sites and the fact that um, once sites have been identified, you know, you are legally required to cease working. Um, so they, they reference that um, and then go on to say that instead the the pipeline's field crew reviewed the location and because they didn't see any sites, um, they decided to clear it themselves. And I'm not sure uh who they're talking about when they're talking about the field crew, whether that was a pipeline archaeological pipelines archaeological field crew or whether that was the field crew of people who were actually um doing the the bulldozing. But people who aren't archaeologists won't necessarily recognize um what things may have historical significance. I have certainly gone and, and worked on excavations where you are looking for stones that are in a pattern that seems not natural because anything else that may have, you know, existed at that place is, is probably gone by now. Um, you know, that maybe food stores or, or burial can, cairns. And um, I, I just find that interesting. Yeah. Um, um, in addition to the burial cairns, you know, there's been some discussion uh, that I've heard, uh, oh, there weren't actually burials there. Well, you know. Decay occurs. Mm-hmm. Some do decay uh, in a lot of instances. And that's not to say that it was a field of thousands of burials. But I mean, when there's a cairn and the tribe says that's a burial cairn, bulldoze it and then be like, oh, well, there weren't bones there. It's not a legitimate way of assessing the significance of sites. Right. There's a, some major ethical issues there. Um, yeah. And then and, and again, in the, the mire of information that we have, I, I keep reading that. The area had been surveyed. The route had been adjusted to avoid anything that had been identified. Um, so I, I admit, perhaps, and, I, and I, like we had in our disclaimer, just have the information that we have. I mean, maybe there's some massive miscommunication where, um, Chelsea, as you're saying, maybe the folks who were bulldozing thought they weren't hitting it, that it was literally just a pile of rocks and that there had been some massive miscommunication. But I think at this point, everyone needs to Sorry. figure out what is going on. Yeah. <laughs> just stop. And I, and I think it's great that work has been halted at this point, that there's, I'm sure, plenty of blame to pass around. That's, that, 
that will occur in a project. However, I think it's good that it stops so that figure out, well, okay, are there archaeological remains here? All right, what do we need to next? What had been missed? And so on and so forth. To avoid these major um, problems from occurring again and again, and to make sure that the voices of the, the tribes are being heard. That it's not just, you know, lip service, like, oh, we're going to halt this for now. Like, hopefully, I hope, like, like what we have with the Society for American Archaeology letter, that wonderful letter that was sent out showing, like, as archaeologists, we are supporting what is, um, the, the, we're supporting the protest because we, as archaeologists, we believe in this process. We believe in compliance and we want this to be done right. Exactly. And I think that there's, um, actually going to be, be an important date coming up soon. Um, in fact, it will probably occur, I can actually say, will definitely occur between now and, uh, and when this podcast gets posted online because this is not a live podcast. Um, <laughs> but I believe October 5th was a date that was, that was mentioned for the next court proceedings. Um, so it will be interesting to see what comes out of that. Yeah. Um, An additional note, too, is they only halted the project at the site. Right, where the protest is taking place. Yeah, they continued elsewhere, which, you know, there's rumbles about that, because, um, as Chelsea, as you mentioned uh, during our break, um, there are other non-tribal interests that are set about the, how this is proceeded and how uh, the company has taken advantage of various laws or way of things written in order to do what they want with very, appearing to have very little um, care for the local area. So um, it's funny looking at their website actually and see what they have posted because I know that their PR department, I'm sure, is <laughs> in, on fire right now. Uh, around the clock. We can all be grateful that we don't work in that PR department. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting because so much focuses on the number of construction jobs, thousands of construction jobs that, that are being brought to the local areas. But one of the things, the arguments that I find really annoying about a lot of the pipeline projects is that these jobs are temporary. They're not sticking around. Yeah. These are moving fast. It's human bus and the employees that are often hired to do the pipeline are not local. On occasion they are, but generally speaking, they're from elsewhere. And the, you know, North Dakota back and field and that whole insanity has brought in so many people from everywhere. Um, it's actually an anthropological study on its own. There's, I know, at least uh, one or a couple of people working on studying that temporary work situation. and how they've built that up there. So just to get back to all of this, the, the pipeline itself seems to me a very thinly veiled uh, kind of profit deal because, uh, or profit-seeking deal, because the oil, from what I understand, and this, you know, it could definitely be hearsay, but I'm pulling it off of, you know, not the most, I guess, semi-reliable, uh, I believe I pulled it off of uh, MSBC, was that a lot of this is going to end up being um, export it hmm. once it gets to Illinois. So that's what they say. I don't see where it gets exported necessarily from Illinois, but you know, um, that's a whole other whole other issue. But part of this is the reason why I bring that up is so much of North Dakota and some ways South Dakota as well. That North Dakota's economy is the vast majority of it depends on the oil country, and 
there seems to be a very large uh, margin for the grief and or the the sense that there isn't a lot of choice in these matters. Because if something doesn't go through, then, you know, the whole system collapses, including the North Dakota economy. So, But the North Dakota economy has been using rails and trucks and other things to, to move the oil that they will be trying to move with, with the pipeline. Um, so as, as much as they would like to paint it as the only option moving forward, it isn't. <laughs> right. True. But the, the pipelines are statistically safer. Yes. The difficulty is, is that you're trying to put it in and to do the shortest route possible, which I get. But, you know, you've got to be able to give a little bit. And if you have a predestined route and you start construction while you're still baiting, you know, certain sections of it, you're going to come to that impasse and be like, whoa, are we, what are we doing here? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm sure that'll be the last section to be completed. But at this point, they, they, there's no not completing it because they have so much of it done. What is it between, what, 40 and 60%, something around there? Uh, but moving on from that, um, I did want to point out, going back to some of the law, um, the intention of NEPA and of the National Historic Preservation Act, NEPA being the National Environmental Protection Act, or Policy Act, sorry, National Environmental Policy Act, uh, they were both written in the 60s. Uh, this was, of course, after all of the crazy highway construction completed in the 50s and early 60s. And while it did amazing things for our roads for the country and transportation and all of that, the highways really bulldozed a lot of historic communities, uh, sacred sites, and just enough to where the public felt that it was necessary to board up. Uh, so that's a little bit of the background as to why this stuff the way it is and why it's there. Um, there are several acts that were uh, kind of added in time. It all started in 1916 with the Antiquities Act, um, but up until 106 was amended, I think, just in 2012. Uh, 2012. Uh, so there, there have been amendments. Uh, there hasn't been an overhaul. Some some people, I think, uh, and rightly so, that you wouldn't be able to really get a whole new environmental, or I'm sorry, uh, cultural resources law set um, to pass through uh, the current Congress. <laughs> Maybe sometime in the future if we want to, but uh, that's where there has been, and there's some knowledge that it's not a perfect system. There needs to be some overhaul, but most people don't really want to rock the boat. And with cases like this, with Dakota Access, have it, the issues brought into the limelight as far as, you know, you have all these regulations and you have the things that the agencies and the companies need to do, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to go with what the tribes want or the communities want. So archaeological or uh, not, tribal or not, all of the above, if they don't like it, it's encouraged, strongly encouraged, that they reach a consensus. If they don't, you know, they're going to get very angry public, but there's no legal action that's really there's no teeth to the law as they say well and beyond legal action um i mean a lot of these sites are are irreplaceable and once they're gone they're gone and even if legal action is uh someone manages to take take legal action beyond just having a very angry public um i mean they might have to pay some some reparations or some damages but that doesn't really 
I mean, it can't undo the the damage that has been done to those those sites. Um, I completely agree. Uh, I think the teeth, any teeth in a law may avert people from going ahead and being like, oh, well, it doesn't really matter in the end anyway, because we're not going to actually get any backlash, they think. And that's not to say, I mean, definitely not all positive like that. And there's a lot of great agency folks and a lot of really amazing firms that do take the ethical route. They take the high road, and I see that a lot. Um, but that's not to say that there aren't scraggly situations out there that don't. Uh, and we mentioned this earlier uh, off-air, too, with the system in place in which archaeological firms get to do these projects. They don't generally design the project. They're handed something and they bid on it. Uh, and that's if they bid, they're handed a map and said, all right, go. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So there's when there's good communication, that can work in favor of everybody. Um, but not all firms feel comfortable, you know, knocking on the agent's door after they have uh, want to bid on a project and be like, "Hey, I know I said I do this, but I find some issues. Can we sit down and discuss this?" Um, that there's a number of reasons why that doesn't always happen um, when it should. The weird design come from the companies, they could, um, often the maps do, depending on how they slice up the project area. In this case, I think it was sliced up for a number of reasons, and not just cultural, uh, but I think it has possibly to do with the number of laws they have to comply with, I'm not sure, but there's a lot of engineering mental state why that might seem like a really great idea, (laughs) but not, uh, and to paraphrase the CRM uh, podcast, I believe someone on there said something to that uh, to that degree. Well, right, and and this project is going um, through through many states. I mean, a lot of obviously the the process are happening in in North Dakota, um, so that is what everyone is is familiar with. But you know, you do have federal regulations, but you're also going through what Iowa and Illinois and South Dakota and North Dakota and all yep. of those states have have different laws, and counties within those states can have different laws that will you know, affect the, the construction and, um, you know, the historical sites, um, you know, surveying and everything. So it, it is certainly a lot of moving pieces. Um, and actually on, on that note, I think that we are about at our next break. So uh, we will be back shortly. Would you like to get more involved with archaeology? Are you looking for volunteer or internship opportunities? Are you already working on community or personal archiving projects and could use some helpful hints? Check out the Ideas Portal, sponsored by Codify. Visit ideas.codify.com, a free and open community tool, and share your ideas, knowledge, and advice on select topics that will lead to vibrant opportunities and initiatives for all aspects of archaeology, from field work to public service. All ideas are welcome, so visit ideas.codify.com today and make your voice heard. That's ideas.codifi.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. If you're just joining us, we've been talking about the Dakota Access Pipeline um, and all of the archaeological implications surrounding that. Having spent the, the first 40 minutes kind of talking about where we are and how we got to where we are, we would like to spend the, the next 20 minutes talking about whether or not 
this situation could have been prevented. And then moving forward, what can we do um, as archaeologists now both to try and salvage what can be salvaged from this situation um, as well as what we can do moving forward to, to strengthen our relationships with Indigenous groups and hopefully um, stop things like this from happening in the future. So to, to start off with, do we think this could have been prevented? Yes. yes. All right. <laughs> How? <laughs> For one thing, and if we go all the way back to the beginning, there's this type of permit that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers used that has absolutely nothing to do with the type of pipeline that is being constructed. Um, and, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact type of permit, but it's made for um, above-ground projects, something like a power line, um, that type of thing. So I think from the get-go, they used the completely wrong type of permit to do the work. And you, they were able to use a permit in a way to, I don't know, almost allow for this crazy situation to occur. And it seems like just from the get-go, if that permit had not been allowed and they had gone in the correct direction for a Section 106 and NEPA compliance process, a lot of this could have been circumvented. Yeah, the, the permit that you're talking about, it is called Nationwide Permit 12, subtitled Utility Line Activities. So most of the language in here, like you said, does discuss, um, it, it mostly applies to power lines. Um, it does define the term utility line um, as not including activities that drain and water and rents. Um, it does apply to pipes being drained from another area, but it's specific to things that are low impact and thus not a 1170-mile pipeline, gas pipeline that is um, put underground. So that would be a high impact as far as groundbreaking. And not to mention the fact that they're doing a access way of about what so I think the choosing this permit, um, something that from what I understand the Army Corps has done obviously previously, otherwise they may not have chosen to do this, they issued this in order to help streamline the process, which, you know, I get from a business standpoint that that's not why we do this. Uh, in a lot of ways we do work I mean we do work for the companies, but the idea is to help keep them out of situations like they're in now here. Uh, on another note, more I think paying attention to and absolutely having a conversation in the consultation process that involved the I don't know, it just feels like the the tribe would not be as set as they are and it pointing fingers the way they are if things had been done correctly. Even though they, the oil company wants to say and wants, is, is trying to claim that they satisfied everything. Yes, they may have satisfied the letter of the law, but not the intention. And the intention being to help protect those cultural properties from destruction um, or even, what is it, alteration. It's not even complete destruction. It doesn't have to be. Yeah, and I mean, that brings up an, an interesting point to consider whenever you're dealing with any sort of, of law or legislation, and obviously those of us who are archaeologists deal with our fair share of law and legislation and, and paperwork and bureaucracy, um, laws change, you know, hopefully for the better, um, sometimes at, at fairly regular intervals. And, you know, it does take 
something happening to force uh, an evaluation or a reevaluation of those laws to, to hopefully get change. But you can you can both follow the letter of the law, but you can also go above and beyond and follow both the intention of the law, but also also kind of the the ethically correct thing to do, regardless of whether or not it's um, dotted I's and cross T's on a on a piece of paper in a courthouse somewhere. Going far beyond due diligence. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm all about ethical due diligence, not just legal due diligence. Um, yeah. For what that's worth. I agree. Um, we mentioned earlier the Society for American Archaeology issued a letter uh, to the Lieutenant General Todd Semonite at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The, there was a recent letter, oh, that was back on the 13th of September. Um, this is a three-page letter signed by the uh, signed by the president of the association and CC'd everyone that's involved. So it was lit- written to um, the Army Corps, but they also included or CC'd um, technically um, president, the tribe, uh, the, it looks like just the Standing Rock tribe. Uh, the ACHB or Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, which has kind of the, the oversight for the oversight agency. I think it's really complicated. <laughs> the other uh, agencies who have helped step in to uh, stop the construction on this site, and that would be the Department of the Interior and the Department of Justice, as well as um, the governors of North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, and Illinois, as well as the shippers from all those, um, those and the CEO of the Energy Transfer Partners, the company that they're dealing with. Um, they name out the grievances, and then this was sent to all members and was made public. So this kind of, I think, gives a, from what I can tell, one of the more accurate, probably best attempts to poke a stick at what went wrong. Uh, <laughs> And to yeah. Show yeah. So, so this kind of moves us on to that that second question um, about kind of what what could be done to to salvage the situation now. Um, you know, and, and I think that that um, that SAA letter is is really important. There was also a um, uh, and actually it, it may have been the the same letter, but um, it involved. Um, over 1,200 people, mostly archaeologists, anthropologists, uh, museum officials, curators, and academics, um, you know, have sent a letter saying, hey, we, you know, you need further study of, of the land around um, the, the pipeline project. Um, you know, and, and that's a, a pretty big number um, of, of people to, to get on board, you know, really, really quickly. Um, and the, the end of the article that I'm actually looking at the, the New York Times comments on how unusually vast and swift this, yeah. um, <laughs> this opposition from, you know, academics and, and museum individuals and scientists and archaeologists has been. Um, and I think that's, that's great. It's a, you know, wonderful show of, of solidarity and, um. Yeah. Well, we've worked hard as a profession to build that relationship with tribes. And that people who, you know, were in charge of making this project compliant is the agency. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's part of it because I think there may have been 
some misunderstanding by some pub, some of the public that, oh, those archaeologists are screaming natives again or something along those lines. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not there as far as I don't know how the, the on the ground, um, compliance went, but generally speaking, you know, and in all legal senses, the agency is the person who, or the people who are in charge of, you know, making those objections. And if the firm, archaeological firm, isn't doing what they're supposed to, they are the ones to say, hey, you need to go back and double check this, or can you do that? Um, but the, the uh, discussions with the tribes, those consultations are not done by archaeologists. Those are done by the agency. And unfortunately, the whole process, no matter what, has harmed, I think, the relationship as a whole. And you're right, it's good that the letters are showing we are, we do support the compliance process. We do want to have consultation and we do want to have a strong relationship with indigenous groups. Um, and going back to the agency, I wonder then how fully can they be potentially reprimanded for as far as this has gone? Um, it is a concern. Um, how far did uh, lack of communication go? Because um, as you were saying, if one of the companies did something incorrectly and then they provide a report that didn't do everything that agency wanted, well, then that report goes to the agency. The agency sends it on to the shippo. The shippo then says, oh, I guess it's okay. And it's just, it, it just keeps rolling on and on. It just snowballs into this situation. So, And I think I, one of the things things that we can really do as a profession, I guess, um, both as archaeologists, not just firms, but also archaeologists who do work in agencies and archaeologists who work in academia and who are working for the SHPO and otherwise involved in the compliance process is to be very mindful and not, you know, after doing it for 20 years, don't fall into a checking the box for the sake of checking the box. No, it's good to ask questions. It's good to... Yeah. Look at the full picture. Figure out what on earth is going on. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that sometimes uh, companies that are contracted don't necessarily feel feel comfortable with that. And, you know, unfortunately, the nature of, of archaeological work is sometimes not the the steadiest, um, you know, and there is that, that fear of, of rocking the boat. Um, but, but sometimes you need to do a little rocking. Yes. And I... Again, I think those letters were, they're rocking the boat, and it's a good thing. Yeah. And the, the second, I don't know if we mentioned the second letter here, they have the American Cultural Resources Association. So the association which represents uh, the cultural resources uh, business in general, uh, they did also issue a letter just uh, on the 28th of September, so much more recently. And this is a little more pointed in that it goes over specific aspects of Section 106, which uh, they have beef with the Army Corps as far as their inability to comply. And this is actually more general and not specific to uh, the Dakota Access, but it does discuss the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, process and how the way that the Army Corps complies with 106 i.e. they did actually make their own rules for following 106, separate from every other agency follows another set of regulations, they made their own, they follow those, and there are a lot of contradictions between those two sets of regulations, and that's what this letter attests to and discusses 
and the need to fix that uh, uh, problem. Um, consistency and predictability, etc. So I'll make sure this uh, gets to you guys, uh, to the show notes as well. Um, it's a pretty good letter, and if you want, want to dig into the beef of it, this kind of gets into some of those things that we uh, <laughs> tried to, to touch on earlier, but with the fat binder I have of regulations in front of me, it was hard to find the exact things that I wanted to quote, and just decided not to. <laughs> For those of you who feel like wading through large uh, piles of legalese. Exactly. In your spare time. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I think at the end of the day, the best advice we can give is just keep updated on all of the news that's coming out, keep updated on what the um, court will decide, what, what the next steps will be, and as archaeologists, let's see how we can keep being supportive of the situation, but also ask questions and hopefully figure out uh, both sides of the situation. And and I guess the, the most important thing is be supportive of the protesters and their voice. Yeah, and something also, uh, especially to those young budding archaeologists that are just popping into business, um, be careful with criticizing your fellow archaeologists. It is small business, and if you're not there, it's hard to know did what, when, what exactly went on, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So um, that's something to keep in mind, and not just for your sake, but um, if we are a community, and uh, sometimes if someone really screws up, and it takes a while to get to points where people start getting comfortable enough to point that figure or that finger, they won't work in archaeology anymore. It's happened before um, for those who uh, have been around a while really interesting stories of really unethical behavior from um, people that have practiced in the past, uh, and they get shunned or excluded um, in, in certain ways, but that's something that, uh, well, it, it is a reality, and you kind of have to be careful with that power of a small community. <laughs> mm-hmm. For sure. Just keep an open mind. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And supportive of your you know, fellow archaeologists, we're all kind of in this together, and we're doing our best to do what we can. Um, but like we said before, if you're afraid to rock the boat, you know, that's all fine, but, you know, it's over. <laughs> Once you start rocking it. Right. Well, and I do have to say the, um, the letters that I have seen have not necessarily been condemning of the archaeologists who works on the project, right. but, you know, the agency and, and the process that um, I mean, some of these laws that we were talking about earlier are 50 years old, and that is, um, in some ways, a very short span of time, especially when you're talking to archaeologists who can work on sites that are, you know, tens of thousands of years old. But um, in terms of where we are today, in terms of cultural sensitivities, um, you know, I mean, 50 years ago was... Uh, a long time ago, you know, the Civil Rights Act was what, like 1964? Yeah. Um, just to, to give people an idea of how different perceptions were and how different the world was back then. And, you know, it is, it is really important to keep your laws as up to date as possible. Um, you know, and of course the government does not have un- unlimited money to spend on updating the, the archaeological laws every year. Um, and that's why it's important to uphold ethical uh, 
behavior and business side, doing our best to to do what we can because that's why we're there. Begin. Um, on another note, um, I also wanted to pitch um, if anyone is an SA member and are not subscribed to the Government Affairs newsletter, I do recommend if you're interested in seeing what happens um, from here on out and if those laws get updated or how you can help contribute to that, um, you can keep in the loop that way. It's something that I get somewhat semi-regularly, I think about every quarter or every other month, depending on what's going on and how often Congress decides to do anything. <laughs> um, but it's nice to keep up on what's going on, not just for things that um, affect how compliance is done, but whether it's done. There's been a lot of movement in the last few years to try and give certain corners of the federal government the ability to uh, veto uh, or override the historic, uh, the, or the National Register list listing. So uh, just as something to keep an eye out for, if this is something that you find important, um, definitely keep an eye on it. Yeah, that's um, it's really great advice. And we're actually coming up on uh, the end of our hour, so beyond... Um, you know, keeping keeping up to date. Do either of you have any final thoughts? Other than just trying to keep updated and keeping an open mind and being supportive of your archaeology community if you're an archaeologist and trying to keep informed is always a good thing. That's the best advice I can give is just try to keep informed and but at the same time be supportive. It's a difficult situation and it is very confusing legal wise, community wise situation. Yeah. I mean, to, to get even a slight grasp on the law, if, you know, at least on the West Coast, when we have, where we have quartered um, the university uh, instead of a semester system, it's a full, you know, 10 or 11 week course. And that doesn't even really get into all of the nitty gritty. So as far as the complexity, it, it's up there in the scale of things for the, the client. Uh, what I really want to say is I am really interested to see how this is going to play out. I mean, by the time this gets published, it'll be a little bit farther than we are now. But it's it's changed a little bit, and it's interesting to see what comes out. And I'm really hoping I can continue to be optimistic of what will come out of this uh, for a positive on being able to use it as a tool to change and improve the way these laws are uh, adhered to, the way they're played out, and... Uh, also, the accountability that the uh, to public and to tribes. Yeah, so I would I would also have second second that um, you know stay optimistic, stay informed, uh, interested to see how it how it plays out. And unfortunately, some of this is damage done. Um, you know, there are there are sites that you know have been disrupted that we're never going to get back, um, and that is. A terribly, terribly unfortunate thing um, and very disappointing. But it's important to learn from from things like this and and move forward. Um, and again, not just point a finger. Um, yeah. You know, but how how can we all do better as individuals, as a discipline, um, in conjunction with agencies, in you know, conjunction with with tribes and other groups that we work with. Um, 
don't let it be for naught. That's a very, very good point. How can we make this the best learning experience possible? Right, because we don't want another one. (laughs) We do not need, we don't want another one like this. And it is something to, you know, to mourn and to to lament the loss of the, the sacred sites. But that loss and on this scale and the community that was involved, I think, will create a larger solidarity with that community towards society. Um, that's my optimism reading through again, but it's, uh, it was, yeah, it's been difficult to watch, very difficult to watch in a lot of ways. But. Yeah, for, for sure. Well, on, on that note, I think that we are out of time, but Emily and Kirsten, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I think that this was a good conversation, um, and I look forward to talking to you ladies in a couple weeks again. <laughs> All right, night, everybody. Night. All right, I'm going We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Remember to like and share. If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comments section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site. Or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for this show was Retro Future by Kevin McLeod, available at Incomtep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.